Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by my colleagues and good friends, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament, Dr. Peter Lee, professor of Old Testament, and Dr. Gray Sutanto, professor of systematic theology here in the D.C. campus. And we have a special treat today. We are joined by a special guest, Dr. Richard Gaffin. It's great to have you, Dr. Gaffin. Thank you. Privileged to be here. You need no introduction, and yet we will give you one. And so I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Tommy Keene to give us a little bit of an introduction and start our conversation. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I, as you were as you were saying that, it dawned on me that actually most of our listeners and students know of you. You are you are a name in in our hallowed halls here at RTS Washington because uh, several of the faculty here have had you uh, at Westminster and have tried to pass along the the great tradition that you left for us uh, to the next uh, to the next generation. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Dr. Gaff, Dr. Richard Gaffin was the um, Charles Crahey Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary. You were there since 1965. Yes, teaching. Um, and uh, recently, the author, most recently, the author of *In the Fullness of Time: uh, A Introduction to the Biblical Theology of Acts and Paul*. Um, you can also find his writing in Resurrection and Redemption, um, Perspectives on Pentecost and By Faith, Not By Sight, three of your kind of seminal works there. Um, and I thought it'd be great to kind of start center of the circle, kind of with a, with a, uh, with Pauline theology as, as maybe an anecdote. I remember having you over to dinner one night, you, you, and, uh, commenting, um, that uh, that I was a, that I would describe myself as a Gaffinite, and you, and you um, helpfully said, Tommy, I think that the word you're looking for is a Paul. You're Pauline, um, <laughs> and uh, and I always appreciated that because that's uh, you know that was center of the circle is, is kind of Paul's theology and uh, his his thought world, and I think in the common thread in all of these books is. That what makes Paul tick, what's architectonic for Paul, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of redemption in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I thought that'd be a great place to start. Can you give us some thoughts on that and how that uh, helps us think about Paul and Paul's theological thought? Yeah, I would say, excuse me, I would say that... My interest in Paul, uh, which goes back to my doctoral work at at Westminster, um, well, I'm not quite sure how best to begin here. I think we have to bring Voss into the discussion, Mm -hmm. uh, and to a great extent as well, Herman Ritter Voss. Their work... Uh, especially influenced me, and particularly uh, Voss. And um, I think it was through their 
work uh, that I was drawn to focus on the resurrection because, uh, and particularly the soteriological significance of the resurrection because well, every, anyone who's a believer uh, understands that the resurrection is, is extremely important. Um, but I think it's often seen primarily as an evidence, the climactic evidence for the truth of the Christian religion, which it undoubtedly is. But I, I think for a number of reasons, uh, we can go into the his, you know, the history of theology and church history to explore this, but particularly in the, in the period from the Reformation down and especially with the influence of uh, enlightenment uh, on theology, uh, the, uh, the emergence of the historical critical method, mm -hmm. um, uh, more broadly evangelical and reformed uh, those faithful heirs of the Reformation, let me put it that way, have tended to focus on the death of Christ and its saving significance in, in the interest of making the point uh, that the death of Christ is directed, first of all, not toward for our saving benefit, but to propitiate the just wrath of God penal substitution, and it was mm -hmm. so uh, so essential uh, for our uh, Reformation tradition to make that emphasis in view of all kinds of uh, efforts uh, of so-called liberal theology to, to undercut that emphasis. I think that tended then to um, lead to an eclipse uh, or a failure let's put it that way, um, to give attention to the th uh, soteriological significance of the resurrection. And uh, that, so I was drawn into that area. And um, it's, um, uh, that, that's what it's, it's been my concern uh, to highlight the, um, yeah, I don't. Know. I can go on further here if you would like. I think um, you know all of us who have uh, have had the privilege of of studying um, and uh, benefiting from the work of those who have come before us. That's uh, uh, we read things that uh, at a particular point in our own development that have. A decisive uh, impact. And for me, I would say it's an article by Voss that he, it was, it appeared first in a centennial volume uh, for Princeton Seminary in 1912. Uh, the short title is the, well, the full title is uh, The Eschatological Aspect of the Spirit in the Theology of Paul. Mm. And that was so important for me because, uh, again, our tradition has tended to, uh, I think, separate unduly the, um, the forensic aspects of the gospel, justification uh, from the work of the Spirit. 
and um, yeah, to make to come to to the the key point, Voss in that article shows that Paul has uh, Paul's understanding of eschatology is focused in the work of the Spirit as the climactic benefit of the death and resurrection of Christ. And that that then, um, that, uh, that forensic significance of the Spirit is seen in raising Christ from the dead. So that Christ's resurrection by the Spirit is his justification and as believers then, our justification is because we share by union with Christ uh, in his justification. Mm. He, uh, and, uh, so many things come in here. Um, uh, it's uh, the resurrection, of course, is not just simply an event in the past, but it becomes... Um, I mean, it, it determines who Christ is now mm -hmm. uh, and that in his, so that you can't, uh, inevitably the resurrection gives rise to the ascension of Christ more broadly, his exaltation. And uh, in his exaltation, uh, he is the living exhibition of the righteousness that is reckoned as ours and can never be taken away from us because of who he is. And as the writer of Hebrews, getting a little away from Paul, uh, particularly emphasizes as our righteousness, he is there as the intercessory presence that uh, maintains us. Uh, Paul said, yeah, everybody uh, uh, rightly, quotes the end of uh, the closing, uh, the climax of Romans 8, that nothing, not even death itself, will separate us from the love of God and Christ. And that's specifically because Christ is at the right hand of God mm. uh, there permanently uh, to intercede for us. So I th That's beautiful. I... I did not have the privilege of sitting under your teaching, but I went, having gone to RTS Orlando about 20 some years ago, I later realized how influenced my professors were by your writings. It was one of those things that you, those experiences where you have later where you're reading someone and you realize, oh, I, I agree with everything he's saying. And you realize, oh, he, he was the first one to say it. And I, I, I agree with him because I had been hearing so much of his teaching mediated through other voices. And one of them was that. It strikes me, it, one of my early memories of being exposed to your teaching was someone highlighting this idea that, you know, death and resurrection should be hyphenated, right? We, we As Christians, we should think of them as like a hyphenated phrase, right? It's always death and resurrection. You know, don't leave it just at death. Don't don't see resurrection without thinking about the death, you know, that this is one full cycle. And that was very formative early on because I think I had been raised in, uh, in, in a, a context where we were focusing so much on penal substitutionary atonement. That was kind of it. That was like the heart of the gospel without that full cycle. 
right, of death and resurrection. And it's even, you know, it's one of those things that I, I, I've offered in class and, and, and imbibing that in Old Testament theology, realizing that this is helpful in how we think about the typological cycles that we find in the Old Testament as well. You know, it's, it's never just Exodus, it's Exodus and conquest. It's, it's never merely exile, it's exile and restoration. These are all a part of what the prophets call Yom Adonai, Day of the Lord, right? This exile and restoration, you know, and that there's this uh, redemptive typological cycle that we find fulfilled so gloriously in death death and resurrection. And that, that's been really influential. And I've quoted you many times on that in class. And it's really helped form my thinking, particularly about then how we, as you just put it wonderfully there, how our union with Christ is not merely like a union with this kind of person who we read in the gospels, this story, but it is it is a union through the Spirit with the risen Christ, that this is part of this Christian experience is being united with the risen Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And envisioning you know, the Christian life that way is such, such, an, uh, such an empowering and um, humbling and worshipful. It results in worship. It's such a wonderful way of thinking of the Christian life. Yes. Amen. I totally agree. In fact, um, uh, I think uh, um, I debated whether or not to make that essay by Voss, the uh, the Pauline, the eschatological concept conception of the spirit, because hmm. uh, it made a similar impact on me when I read it in seminary, and 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 in spite of the fact that I do Old Testament classes, uh, I actually debated whether or not to make that a required article in one of my classes because so much of the Old Testament finds its climax in the way that Paul sees it in terms of that age of the spirit and that final stage of fulfillment. So I really thought that it, you know, it really is a nice way to kind of see the climax point uh, of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Gavin, you know, with your talk about uh, Gerhardus Voss, I'm curious on how you ended up a New Testament guy uh, as opposed to an Old Testament one. <laughs> is Ritter Boss to blame? Look, <laughs> Voss, Voss, you know, I can see that uh, you're thinking of his doctoral work in, in, uh, that Voss did in Germany. Um, yeah, come on, he, we can both claim him. How's that? <laughs> well, that's the beauty of Voss. You know, he was yeah. such a biblical theologian. Uh, yeah. we, we associate him often with with the Old Testament, since the uh, since so much of his, you know, his biblical theology is so rich in the Old Testament, yeah. um, his eschatology of the Old Testament, um, his although he did work in the New Testament, the uh, the uh, messianic as a response to the messianic secret, the self disclosure of Jesus's mm -hmm. um, work on the kingdom and the church, and so yeah, so I guess we can claim him both in both areas. Yeah, and he taught an important course on Hebrews. That's correct, Christ, right? Even yeah. even though it was not well attended, I'm told. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Dr. Gaffin, you're also not just a New Testament theologian, though. People have now come to know you, at least in the later years of Westminster, as a systematic theologian. Mm -hmm. And people might not know about this, but Dr. Gaffin's had written a small book on Kyber and Bobbing that's still cited today, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's an earlier work in Bobbing studies. 
I mean, honestly, Bavink wasn't really yet translated when you wrote those essays that became that book on God's word in servant form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're working off the Dutch and you were actually correcting misappropriations, perhaps we would call, of, of Kuiper and Bavink into a particular sort of doctrine of scripture, which said that God's word there in servant form, in, in particular streams reading of Kuiper and Bavink, God's word in servant form means that the human words of the Bible could be inerrant, sorry, in error, but but the infallible message is actually um, strong and powerful. So we got to extract the infallible message from the errant human words of Scripture. And you corrected that by showing it from the primary sources of, of Kyber and Bobbing himself. So I, I definitely encourage listeners to pick up that book. Um, I think it's still very useful even after, you know, 20 years of Bobbing studies now um, since the translation of Bobbing. Well, I guess not 20 years yet, 15 years mm-hmm. since 2003, Reform Dogmatics, right? Right. So um, I encourage everyone to pick that up. But but we're talking about Voss. We're talking about um, your influences. How would you say, uh, how, describe those influences more perhaps? Who who were you standing on the shoulders on? Um, and how were they formative for you? Yeah, so far... I had all my systematic theology as a, a, student, a student at Westminster from John Murray, except for the intro, uh, what intro course, which was taught by Van Til. Hmm. Um, so, um, beginning particularly with anthropology, uh, through the rest of uh, the loci, the topics, uh, I uh, Murray. Uh, I had that work with Murray, and um, yeah, I think he uh, he just he influenced me not only as a systematic theologian uh, very uh, decisively, but be also because of the way in which he did um, systematic theology, bringing in considerable exegesis. So that he, um, you know, he has made the statement that uh, that Voss was the greatest exegete uh, that he had studied with, and mm-hmm. I think he he um, Murray was a student of Voss at at Princeton. I think that he um, he was thinking, working to make. Uh, systematic theology uh, essential for doing, excuse me, biblical theology essential for doing sound systematic theology. Mm. You know, as he would put it, and uh, exegesis is the lifeblood of systematic theology. Systematic theology uh, is a uh, thoroughly non-speculative undertaking. And um, in that way, uh, then he, he, um, he was seeking to show that um, biblical theology, uh, I guess I'm, I shouldn't overstate here, uh, I think explicitly he was pointing, or at least he pointed me, to appreciate that uh, the sound exegesis that systematic theology depended upon uh, needed to be 
of a, of a biblical theological uh, nature that is attending to the redemptive historical character of biblical revelation. Um, uh, the whole history of revelation idea that uh, that Voss um, gives, uh, you know, becomes at least with within a reform context so essential in in self-consciously developing a uh, a sound biblical theology. I sort of wandered away from your question. I think, Gary, what uh, what. Influence. Yeah, who who are the influences and how yeah. are they formative? So that was really that was a really great discussion. Of Murray, <laughs> that was really interesting. Murray. No, it is yeah. good. So, yeah, well, you know, Murray is one person. So okay, yeah. so now I can say this to you, uh, <laughs> as uh, as I guess it was in, in oh in my in my um, THM year where I was working on Calvin and the Sabbath uh, un, with John Murray. Uh, I had to take a you know, foreign language exam. So one of them was Dutch and um, Van Til especially encouraged me to uh, read. In fact, when he gave me my exam, uh, Sir Oral, he opened up Bob Inc. And um, uh, so I had to uh, read Bob Inc. But, uh, I would say that um, especially, see, I started out in, in, West, in Westminster New Testament and um, with developments there, uh, I transitioned after about 20 years into um, systematic theology. And I would, I would ha have to, the courses that I taught um, particularly uh, the introduction to systematic theology and then a course in, in Christology. I would say in terms of the reading that I did then, um, Bovink was probably the most mm. influential. So uh, mm. after getting back to your original question, I, I guess I would say, um, the influences are Bobbink, Murray, and with a fair amount of Calvin thrown in. There we go. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, do, do you see yourself, I know, I know one of the reasons that this book took so long to come out, this because this is a consolidation of your material, of, I guess 50 years of lectures, right, of on Acts and Paul. Not quite 50. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, but so you've been thinking about these matters for a long time. And one of the reasons that uh, it took so long for this book to come out is because you were translating Voss for, uh, for Lexham Press, I believe. Yeah. Um, do, do you see yourself as contributing to Pauline studies or passing along a tradition? Ha, ha, are you? Mm. Yeah, I I see. Um, and and if you see yourself, what 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 would you say your contribution? I guess how would you define it? Um, I would say mediating Ritter Boss and especially Boss mm -hmm. 
to uh, the generation of students I've had the privilege of having contact yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I don't see myself particularly as creative, whatever that is exactly, but I mean, I think there's areas um, of uh, reflecting um, that, you know, I, I have said things in my own way, but I basically, uh, I always saw myself uh, as having privilege, first of all, to teach the Word of God, mm -hmm. and um, that those that helped me to do that uh, uh, most decisively uh, uh, Ritterboss and Boss. I do have some reservations about Ritterboss's treatment of Paul, hmm. but um, Boss, um, uh, I think uh, I just, uh, I would have been lost without Boss, hmm. let's put it yeah. that way. Hmm. I think one of the things that for me comes out in the book, and this is was the for the payoff of a lot of of the lectures and my time at Westminster as well, is this in, not just the idea of the centrality of the resurrection, but its its importance in in every area. So theologically, the comprehensive way in which you work through resurrection and the Ordo Salutis, how at every point of the Ordo Salutis we can see the telos of resurrection, of, of eschatology precedes protology, and that redemptive historical framework. And then what I've kind of discovered that for me, theologically, everything fell into place in, you know, through that kind of lens, which I think you work through more thoroughly and comprehensively than I've, than I've seen in others. And then in pastoral ministry, the idea that this is actually useful that this is that the usefulness of the resurrection and the spirit that we receive as a result of resurrection in the day in and day out aspects of counseling and preaching and working through problems and the the fullness of redemption that we have that was a vision that i at least caught from your from your classes in a way that i didn't catch from from others i would agree the uh the the historic redemptive event of the resurrection uh, is now. Uh, this is this is sort of my takeaway from your doctoral dissertation. Is now become almost a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting scripture is through the event of the resurrection. So the resurrection is no longer just an event; it's a way of interpreting the entirety of. Um, uh, of scripture and and that idea of taking a historical redemptive event and using that as a way of interpretation is insightful because now mm -hmm. we can actually do the same thing in principle with the Old Testament with something like the exile as sort of a hermeneutic of way of in, of interpreting the Old Testament history. So you see that concept I think is 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 what's so helpful and um, and uh, and and furthering. Uh, the work of, of Voss, of Ritterboss, of others to to take a, uh, a a a biblical theological event and to use that as a way uh, as almost a perspective to kind of look at the entirety of the history of salvation and that has been so benefit not just us I mean we're standing on you know we are uh, the fruit of generations 
of pastor scholars who are able to think this way. Uh, Dr. Gaffin, I do have a question is, you know, you, as we talked about influences, you've talked about uh, systematicians like uh, Bob Inc., uh, John Murray, biblical theologians like Voss and Herman Dertervoss. You, you are a rare scholar who can actually be competent in multiple different areas of disciplines, a systematician as well as a biblical theologian. In our day, you know, these are very rare times. In fact, we are so specialized in areas of study, even the New Testament or Old Testament. You are a a, a Paul guy or, or a Hebrews uh, person, and it's very difficult to be uh, wide, um, uh, to be specialized in wide areas because um, do, do you think that's a good thing in our day to see such high special, specialization that is at the cost of other areas? Uh, or do you see that as a a, a weakness it, to some degree that we're not, you know, we, we think biblical theologically, but at the same time, the, the sacrifice you make is that we are accused of not being systematic. Uh, systematic thinkers are then are not really exegetical, as you suggested, or are adequately historical redemptive. Yeah, uh, Peter, I guess the way, I, way I'd pick up on those comments, I think you're bringing into view the 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 large question of the relationship between biblical and systematic theology and um well um look at it this way uh, uh this institution uh is staked in its uh, maintaining a tradition uh, of, of fidelity to the Westminster standards. And um, those standards have to be in, in uh, <clears throat> the way, the way I, I think it's helpful always to look at confessions is that they are a privileged piece of systematic theology or dogmatic theology and um, that uh, provide then uh, under the uh, final authority of scripture, um, they, they are, if the way a distinction that was, uh, I've always found helpful uh, uh, between scripture as the norming norm and, uh, the, and the confessions and catechisms as the normed norm, if you mm. can uh, pick up on that right. and that distinction, and um, so exegetical work has always to be done uh, within um, that framework, uh, so that there's always a reciprocity of. Uh, of going back and forth between exeges exegesis, which must always be done freshly, but also within the framework of the confessional commitment that mm -hmm. we have, we take upon ourselves as as ministers of the gospel. And that that idea of that reciprocity, I think, is so important that your exegesis is in this reciprocal conversation with confession. And that's something we, we try to do here. We really, we aspirationally try to make that happen and resist the temptation that you see happen in a lot of institutions in a lot of discourse of having there be like a tension or a conflict between ST and BT. Right. 
and rather reading them in light of or understanding them and having them be complementary. I'm a John Frame student, so I'd say complementary perspectives. You know, they're 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 complementary and they build a kind of whole view, and yet they're they're in reciprocity with each other, and we shouldn't try to break that reciprocity up, right? We shouldn't try to divide it. It's 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 a good, healthy way of studying God's word and applying it. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, when I first uh, was teaching in, in New Testament and uh, with my youthful boss enthusiasm uh, and teaching New Testament courses, mm -hmm. um, uh, like dealing with the theme of the kingdom of God and the gospels and, and uh, being drawn uh, more and more uh, into the theme of the resurrection in mm -hmm. Paul, uh, I, uh, I could... Students would respond with a considerable enthusiasm for biblical theology, and so I began. <laughs> I would get the kind. I would get uh, you know. What do we need systematic theology for? Look at biblical theology, and and uh, that is something I think over uh, the years of my teaching, mm -hmm. I've I've I felt had a pushback on uh, because. Um, <clears throat> In a lot of ways, this can be debated. You know, systematic theology is is the queen of theology as the queen of the sciences. Gray tells us that a lot. I'll take that. <laughs> uh, you didn't hear it from me. You heard it from Dr. Gaffin. So. I thought we yes. were just talking well, about no, reciprocity. What happened to reciprocity? No, no, no. Wait, wait. Well, no, he hasn't finished. No, it, but no, let's let just, him continue. You know that's that's a that's a bottom line, and the, see, I think that's what's so important about Voss, um, that um, he always his dogmatics precedes. Uh, he taught dogmatics at Calvin Seminary there um, in Dutch uh, before he moved on. Um, and began his uh, his career at Princeton, where he developed uh, his biblical theology. And he really came there with the opportunity uh, for developing biblical theology, or, or better, uh, uh, an articulation of of uh, uh, of a redemptive historical mm. approach. A redemptive historical mm. hermeneutic is. You know, he preferred the term history of, he was, he preferred to say that he was uh, developing um, the the history of, of special revelation rather than, than biblical yeah. theology. But he never left the dogmatics behind. I'm, uh, you know, the question where, what, what needs to be done in the future, what mm -hmm. someone had to, yeah, see, I think that, um, it's um, that that'll be a fruitful study to uh, see. I I translated the dogmatics uh, of Voss, um, but I mean, I, and and so I, and I tried to that very good, but I didn't have the opportunity to really study them. I think mm. there's room there for someone to explore. Uh, more fully, uh, I'm, 
Myself, I'm convinced there's no tension between the, the early boss of systematic reform dogmatics and the later boss of biblical theology, but uh, there may be more to be, be seen there because uh, certainly the Pauline eschatology um, uh, provides exegesis that you only get glimpses of mm -hmm. in, in the way in which he uh, uh, formulates the matters in, in, the, in the Reformed dogmatics, which are really student notes. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, this has been a concern of mine in recent years. Um, we've got a book coming out in a couple of months called Neo-Calvinism. And one of our arguments is that neo-Calvinism as a term, in terms of its connotations in North America, is that it is primarily a culturally engaged sort of practice of uh, public philosophy. Um, you know, people associate neo-Calvinism with transformationalism and the arts and sciences and so forth and so on. But they don't recognize that in terms of its core and its most vital aspect, I would argue, is that it's a dogmatic tradition. Kuyper and Bavink were dogmaticians, um, and that that central core foundational aspect has actually been sort of eclipsed in contemporary receptions of, of neo-Calvinism, and people have forgotten its its dogmatic center. And I think Voss too um, is sort of seen in that light that he's he's primarily an exegete, but but people forget the dogmatic foundations of his of his arguments. Mm. So, and you know your work on Kuyper and Bavink. Um, circa about 2003, 2008 there, I think showed a little sort of crack in that interpretation of neo-Calvinism as primarily just a culturally engaged thought. It's actually at its core about a doctrine of scripture, about all the different doctrines in systematic theology that we covered. They had a particular reception of reform orthodoxy and they were trying to propel that tradition forward. So maybe this is a little bit of a, of a controversial question, Dr. Gaffin. But how would you consider Voss in light of the neo-Calvinist tradition? And would you call yourself, in light of your dependence on someone like Abavink, a neo-Calvinist dogmatician? Interesting. Everybody's trying to name <laughs> you and claim you today. <laughs> this is uh, timely in a way. Uh, one of my sons, he's not theologically trained, but he has a lot of interest uh, um, and... Uh, Actually, he was, I think, on a vacation in Mexico is where I got this email from him. Uh, and he was there with some other people. And they, he, he said, uh, Dad, give me a quick definition of, well, oh, Dad, what is Neo-Calvinism? Give me a brief statement. <laughs> it's in the air. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, see, I resonate with what you're uh, I guess I just affirm what you're you're saying. I I think that um, you know it, you know, like at the Kuiper Center at Princeton, uh, it it interests me the kinds of topics that come up there and and are, are seen to be uh, uh, you know honoring Kuiper, but I think they so you know, often without any real tethering to yeah. uh, to uh, uh, Kuiper as a as a dogma in his, you know, his dogmatics that he taught a lot. 
but especially for Bobby. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, I appreciate the work of uh, you and others that you're undertaking, and um, I uh, hope that it will um, give a um, uh, a sound understanding of neo-Calvinism. And um, yeah, I would say in that sense, I'm a neo-Calvinist. <laughs> no, in the sense of, um, of um, you know, maintaining, um, building always on the, uh, I'm more familiar with um, Bob Inc. as a dogmatician than Kuiper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just been so great that he's now available in English. And I, th I hope that those claiming to be neo-Calvinists would um, uh, read him uh, and appropriate him. Amen. We hope the same. Well, Dr. Gaffin, I know you're still doing... Uh, 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 work, uh, working on writing projects, and so you know your career is not over by any means. Uh, although the the teaching aspect is is uh, more or less done, but now having uh, I don't know had some time to reflect on uh, on several years and generations of uh, of students that you've had, is there a, a highlight, something that you can reflect on? You think that this is something, this was special, this was a, a real great mm -hmm. moment in my. Uh, in my uh, uh, teaching career? Um, I'm not sure that I could, I, the, uh, the whole 40 plus years is a climactic moment. Mm -hmm. I just am so grateful to the Lord for the, for the years he gave me and uh, the opportunity to work in the areas that, uh, that have come my way in his his uh, providential uh, handling of my, of my life. Uh, it's um, you know the Acts and Paul uh, material. I taught that course I think forty three times consecutive years, and in every year. You know, there comes a point where the material was pretty much, uh, you know, I had my act together, as you might say, but, <laughs> but um, you know, it was just, it was like, in a way, simply because it was the freshness, because it was God's word, there was always a, I was always just excited mm -hmm. to go in and work through those materials with, uh, a new group of students, and uh, um, that from that they would uh, see, particularly in Paul, uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ, mm -hmm. as he uh, refers to in, in Ephesians. So, mm -hmm. yeah, um, the maybe I should, could just comment on that book that uh, I didn't. Um, it was not something that I initiated. There was a student, um, actually, I think you uh, mentioned his name, um, 
uh, son of Scott Oliphant. Uh, Jared Oliphant. Jared Oliphant, who's doing uh, doctoral work in philosophy now. And he had some kind of connection with uh, uh, people at Crossway. And so it was really his idea that I should get this material and that I've been lecturing in, in a book mm. form. And, and so that's that's how I got it. And I'm, and I'm very grateful for that, uh, um, being told what I should do. <laughs> so, it's... Well, that's a shout out to Jared. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> it definitely is a, a contribution. I mean, as, as Scott said, I didn't have the privilege of taking any of your classes. Um, and it's something, I don't have a lot of regrets in life, but that is one of them. Um, and so to have a volume like this, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not quite the same thing as having sat in your classes, but it's about the next best thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I definitely appreciate um uh, the work and um, I would love to see more. I know you have yeah. a whole thing on Hebrews and and that would be a great well, thing to what, see. What are you working on now? Um, can I get a, uh, uh, let me answer that this way. Um, you know, that's only out now. Uh, five months. Thank five, five, <laughs> Let me put months. another. This what have you done for us lately? Is what I'm really asking. Do you, do you, um, do you men know who George Knight is? Okay. Oh, he Yeah, he uh, uh, he taught. At, anyway, um, slightly older than I. Uh, he's with the Lord now. Um, but he was. He has commentary on uh, the pastorals. You might know. Yeah. But uh, he was doing doctoral work at the Free University, hmm. uh, and, you know, young guy there. And uh, he ended up uh, on a waiting for a bus or a train with Herman Ritterboss, hmm. who was, you know, a poor boy. So a night to make uh, a conversation asks uh, Ritterboss, you know, what are you what 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 are you working on now and and so Ritterboss responds that's like asking a woman who's just delivered when she's going to have her next baby <laughs> <laughs> so uh Fair enough. yeah uh no i'm not really working you're not working on anything right now no <laughs> you're just recovering no, nothing yeah i have some um you know one thing I'm not sure how to go about it, uh, but um, the uh, see Ritterboss. I mean, it's quite consistent with Boss. Ritterboss uh, uh, makes this. I think for the first time in 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 all theological literature, this categorical distinction between Historia salutis and Ordo salutis, mm -hmm. history of 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 salvation, order of salvation, which is another way of expressing, uh, you know, the traditional distinction between the once for all accomplishment of salvation and its ongoing application. Mm -hmm. And um, I uh, I think that's such a and, and his point, of course, and I think that Boss is uh, is involved in doing the same 
uh, Ritterboss is, the, I think, the first person to use the expression historia salutis to pair it with ordo salutis. Um, maybe somebody doing work can, can document it earlier, but I've looked into it a bit. That's, as far as I can see, that's his formulation. Hmm. I don't think it's involving. The language of the specific land terms, the no. Yes, okay. but I do have someone writing a chapter on the order of salvation in the Neo-Calvinist tradition. And he's, he's trying to trace at least the conceptual language. The conceptual um, idea was already there in Kuiper. But yeah, I would be very curious to hear what you, what you think about that chapter, perhaps. Yeah, and there's yeah. a strong history of revelation uh, yes. idea in Bob Inc. In, yes. in volume one. There's no, but at any rate, um, I'm not sure. I'd love to write a programmatic piece hmm. that would show how, um, the, how the two are related because I see so much uh, handling of scripture that doesn't appreci doesn't appreciate uh, the histor the, you know the history of revelation idea mm -hmm. and 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 draw well I mean I'm sure you see it in the way in which so much of the new Te Old Testament is used in a kind of exemplary fashion mm -hmm. uh, but then on the other hand, uh, and, um, you know, I get this from, you know, Bob Inc. makes the statement, uh, redemption without application is not redemption, mm -hmm. which is, uh, and actually, uh, if you, I'm still interested, as I recall, he, uh, he's quoting some 17th century person, mm. but, do, but doesn't reference it at all. Mm. He, he, he does it a lot. He puts it in 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 Latin, yeah. Uh, and um, you know, this gives how um, how to um, be focused on legitimately on uh, a redemptive historical approach, and yet not to. Um, not to lose sight that that it must you know for for our lives and for the people that we minister to uh you know what are the the ordo salutis implications mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's just yeah uh it's it's that's why your your work on union with Christ is so important too. Yeah. Yeah. That what Christ has done for you is not yet yours until it is applied by the Spirit as you're united to Him, which is definitely Darren Bobbing too. And your discussion on Historia Salutis, especially in the book Perspectives on Pentecost, is really useful. Um, if if listeners haven't read that book, I'd definitely say mm -hmm. uh, you you know, Tom, you, you mentioned that there are three books in his sort of I'd right. say every single work of his so important. So Perspectives on Pentecost as a rebuttal of, of continuationism, as an idea of using the book of Acts as an exemplary model for the church to, to exhibit today, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, and one of the things I like about that book, and I think one of the things you're getting at there, and where more work could be done, is the specifics of 
how spirit-empowered union with Christ mm-hmm. affects every aspect of of our salvation, the the fullness of it all. Mm-hmm. And Calvin's got some some wonderful prose about that, but I wonder if it's still to um, there's still work that needs to be done, especially in the in practical theology of the implications of resurrection and the power of the Spirit mm-hmm. and Historia Salutis concerns for how I think about my adoption, my sanctification, mm-hmm. or the the role of glorification, those kinds of those kinds of issues. So, so maybe to come back to the question of what what work do you hope um, should be done in the near future by others, by those taking up the task of biblical and systematic theology? We've already mentioned more of a reading of Voss, the relation between early and later Voss, dogmatic and biblical theology Voss, more readings of Bavink for the neo-Calvinist tradition. Um, what other areas, um, if you could speak in a utopian vision? <laughs> utopian uh, vision. Yeah. So if if every if this is all possible at all, what would you what would you recommend for listeners? Yeah. Um, if if I were to do something, uh, if if transpose myself to my past, which is now gone. Uh, yeah, I uh, work in Hebrews. I think is is really important. He's work pointing at me. <laughs> okay, noted. Um, um, well, we could we could take your Hebrews lectures and transpose. You just thought we could talk to Crossway. <laughs> you just got subtweeted by <laughs> Dick Gaffin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I I don't. I'm not sure that I would. What what I would. I don't have a big bucket list. Of yeah. list. <laughs> mm-hmm. What what about Hebrews? Do you think would be useful to the church that's that's not been appropriated? Well, just the. Um, you know, I'm conv- Maybe this will can work as kind of a dart or a pointer. Hebrews thirteen eight. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever, um, typically, almost invariably, maybe I'm overstating, that's seen as a proof text for divine immutability. Mm. Uh, And I'm convinced because of the way the writer argues I don't think this is original or some new thing, but I think it's not appreciated enough that that is an affirmation of the fidelity, the faithfulness of the incarnate and now ascended, uh, exalted Christ, his faithfulness as high priest. Um, that, uh, in a way, that draws everything together that is, um, you know, so prominent in Paul as well. But it's, um, <clears throat> you know, some of the discussions that we're aware of that are going on about um, whether Aquinas has had the last thing to say on the doctrine of of God in in theology proper, uh, um, 
as you know, I appreciate the concerns there. And uh, again, just backing up on the statement I made about Hebrews 13.8, the writer is very clear at uh, in chapter one, for instance, in the use of Psalm 102 uh, of the... Uh, of the divine immutability. Mm -hmm. That's not an issue here. But I think that um, um, issues of theology proper uh, need to be um, articulated in a way that does full justice um, to uh, the history of Revelation, particularly as it comes to a redemption, as it comes to culmination in the incarnation. Uh, hmm. I mean, this we always have to reflect in the light of Scripture, uh, uh, the mystery of the incarnation. Hmm that God has become man, mm -hmm. that is, uh, that's beyond our comprehension. We need to appreciate that, but we also need to, uh, mystery in theology always has to be biblically bounded and not become the occasion for speculation. Mm -hmm. So, mm. well, on that point, but kind of applying it, I guess, um, you've been doing this for 40-some years. You've had a great bit of success. You've, um, you've been a theologian, and you've kept your faith intact. Uh, though I didn't get to have you as a student, like all of us here at the table have been able to worship with you down the road at church, and um, it's been a, that's been a blessing in its own right to get you know to get to know you after your teaching career yeah. for those of us in in the middle of that journey and those of our listeners who are at the beginning of that journey any advice or wise counsel for one who has lived the life of a theologian done it well done it with excellence and continues to uh, and has kept their faith intact, has, has continued to love uh, their Lord and Savior with whom they, or in whom they are united. Um, what would you advise the, the young theologian just starting off? Yeah, well, whatever truth there is in what you just expressed about me is, um, is only by God's grace, mm. that's for sure. I can give you... Um, uh, this, uh, I, I'd answer that along this line. Recently, for whatever reasons, we know that's the Lord's providence, other, the, um, I don't know where I was. I don't know if I was in bed at night or, uh, the second stanza of Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God just came, came to mind the expression, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Uh, and I think as I look back over my own life, 
I can see that, uh, I can see too, see, I think he's not talking when he says, or striving, he's not talking about uh, trying to earn our salvation. Right. He's talking about the Christian life and, uh, and, and the struggle that it is. Um, and I think what I, you know, I would say to all of us, I think as we look at our, we can, as we're concerned to do for the Lord, and, and, and that's, that's what we're called to do, yeah. uh, that um, I'm just aware of too often uh, tending toward confiding in my own strength and my doing, and mm. then, you know, it that would be losing, except the right man is on mm, our, on side, our side. side, the man of God's own choosing. That's that's meant that's meant a lot to me mm. uh, just recently. Amen. Amen. Dr. Richard Gaffin, thank you so much for your life and for your work and your influence on all of us and for joining us today to talk about those things. Thank you for being with us. I'm privileged, really. And to everyone else, it's been great to be with you. And until next week, take care. Thank you.